Hey folks, thanks for checking out the 21 Gun Podcast, the official podcast of the Irreverent Warriors. Um, this one might sound a little different because I had to do a lot of editing. Um, the Gremlins showed up and totally, totally messed with our, our audio during the live recording. So uh, I had to go through and, and clean it up the best I could. So I apologize if the audio sounds off. Uh, I did the best I could. We figured out what the problem was, but obviously it was too late. Tonight's guest is Daniel Flores, former chief warrant officer in the U.S. Army. Um, he had a long and storied career. I believe it was 26 years in the Army. He eventually went on to fly Apache attack helicopters. He's an author. Uh, he wrote South of Heaven, My Year in Afghanistan. He also uh, produced many documentaries about the uh, attack helicopters and the helicopter community in general. So really awesome guest. Great guy to have on. Um, like I said, I feel bad the audio went south, but what can you do? These things happen, especially when you do a live show. Uh, regardless, I hope you enjoy the show. We will be back this Thursday night live. So make sure you check us out at 8 p.m. over at 21gun. Spell it out, 21gun.net. So without further ado, here is Daniel Flores. Off, I think the uh, cavalry hats freaking rule. One of the coolest things I've, I've ever seen. But we um, we were in Conroe, Texas. I think I remember telling you not not too long ago. Yeah. We found a found a place called the Heroes Honor, Cafe. Honor Cafe. Honor Cafe. Right? Is that it? The Honor Cafe. Honor Cafe. Okay. Yeah. And you walk in and you feel like you're at a, a, a chill or something. Yeah, yeah. It's it's freaking so awesome. Uh, and I met a general there, General Hammer. Uh, apparently he's one of the famous generals that are up and around the, the Conroe parts, but, uh, yeah, they got a gun shop connected to it. I met the owner. I'm like, this place rules. This should be, I, if there's a reason to move to Conroe, it's for the honor cafe easily. Yeah. It's nice there. I, uh, I agree with you having a, a restaurant that's like a chow hall, but great food. And then having a, uh, a gun store next to it. Jeez. You can't, that's Texas. And there's like there's like some dude makes uh, lamps with like old military steel helmets and all sorts of crazy stuff. It's really really a, a cool place. So if you guys are in the Houston area, check out the Hero Cafe. I'm gonna get the the owner on so we can talk to him about it because it's really I, we just randomly found it. There was an accident, so we took a left and a right. Next thing you know, I'm at this place. My kids are rolling their eyes. They're like, because there was like a piece of artillery out front, and uh, yeah, they were just. <laughs> I have to go in. Okay, uh, we got a very interesting military career to say the least. Before we get into that, I'd like to hear about the early life. Why and how did Dan Flores eventually become CW4 Flores? So uh, tell us about how you grew up, where you grew up, and all that good stuff. I grew up here in Houston, Texas, uh, riding skateboards, BMX bikes, and never ever thinking about the military. Um, Finally, after a couple of semesters in college, my dad said, no more. It's time to uh, get out and get on your own. So joined the Army, went infantry, and uh, did that for two years, Fort Carson, Colorado. And uh, like I said uh, on my bio there, got out, went straight into Company G-143 uh, LERP, Airborne LERP. And that was a blast. Um, 
that was a blast. Like I said, we got to work with the British SAS. We got to work with uh, our unit itself had a bunch of um, Green Berets, Rangers, Navy SEALs, uh, Marine recon guys that had come off of active duty and wanted to continue the, uh, the infantry lifestyle part-time, so to speak. Did that for uh, three years. And one day at Fort Hood, Texas, I saw a Cobra helicopter hovering around us and I thought, man, that looks like fun. And uh, I got a little tired of uh, uh, a little tired of walking around with a pack on my back. So <laughs> I applied for flight school um, and I just happened to be lucky that right there in Conroe, Texas, 7th Squadron, 6th Cavalry Regiment was starting up. Uh, they started up with Cobras, but I knew that they were going to be getting Apaches. So they sent me to flight school and 1991, I graduated from flight school as a Cobra attack pilot, and about a year and a half later, ended up uh, going to the Apache course uh, through that. Um, at the same time, I was also taking civilian flying lessons to uh, with the college fund to um, become an airline pilot. And uh, at the same time, I in 1999, I got a job with the United States Customs Service. Um, basically federal law enforcement, which is now called Customs and Border Protection. Mm -hmm. So I did that for, oh, geez, for 21 years. I just retired from them last year and uh, started my retirement job there in Conroe flying uh, EMS helicopters for uh, AirLife. Nice. Uh, so let me ask you a quick question about, so you were in the uh, long range reconnaissance and you go to flight school just as uh, the Gulf War, the first war we experienced in years, uh, and and you, I assume you had to miss that, and you had to miss the the role as the ground pounder. How did you feel about that? Yeah, that's uh, I actually had second thoughts about going to flight school because I was going to miss out on the war as an infantry guy. I was in the barracks there at Fort Rucker in flight school when the Flying Tigers, their uh, I want to say eighth of two twenty ninth or seventh, second of two twenty ninth. Flying Tigers there, they deployed to, um, to well, Saudi Arabia for uh, Desert Storm. And uh, that was an eye-opener. Um, that was an eye-opener yeah. to watch those guys actually leave and think like, wow, they're, they're fixing to go. Now, flight school ended up being seven days a week after that, pretty much in September, seven days a week. And the, uh, the word on the street was we were going to lose a lot of people in that war, and they were going to have us come up straight out of flight school going straight over there. So uh, thankfully the war was over quick. Yeah, they were, uh, back when that war kicked off, they had stacks and stacks of um, uh, uh, body bags because they thought it was gonna, they didn't know what he was gonna do. They didn't know, cause they just saw uh, Iran and Iraq fight it for what, 15, 20 years and just the hundreds of thousands of deaths. And they thought that they were just gonna uh, raise hell, but luckily the <laughs> the the post Vietnam era military was uh, up to speed and really kicked some ass. Um, but that you know that's something that we bring up a lot as uh, as veterans is, and it's something I think uh, what do you call them uh, civilians don't understand is it's not a desire to go to war. It's a desire to play the role that you're trained to play. Everyone wants to play that role. Uh, I remember when I got out of flight school, I was in um, C-130 advanced school, and I, I was talking to one of my instructors. I'm like, do you think there'll be any war left? And the guy's like, yeah, don't worry. You'll have plenty of missions to come up on. <laughs> you finally get to do your job. That's like you've been playing the, you know, the games over and over and over and over again, and you finally get to do your job. It's just like, it's a relief. 
Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing too is it, everything you come up with in your head uh, is a lot worse than what you actually experience. Now I know that that's you know obviously not always the case, but still, like I used to say this: the biggest mental fuck in my head was not getting shot at. It was when am I going to get shot? My brain would be like, someone's going to pop right out of that ditch right there and shoot an SA-7. Someone's going to do that and then they wouldn't and I'd be like, and then when it happened, it happened so quick that you just didn't care. You were just like, oh, okay. Our training worked and our aircraft worked. But uh, but I digress. I digress. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Dan? No, I agree with you. It's uh, in Afghanistan when I flew there in 2006 in the Apache, it was, uh, it was, a, lot, it was a lot less work. Well, I shouldn't say that. It was, um, I was mentally harder on myself than what it actually was. Uh, same thing with what you just said, that I was thinking, uh, we're going to get shot at. Now, granted, going in the Corngall Valley, pretty much we got shot at every time going in there, plain and simple. And uh, that's where all of our fights were. But uh, like you said, there's a, there's a little bit of a differences on different people's uh, jobs there. But yeah, I was more scared, not really of dying, but of uh, getting maimed and crippled that's what you know living living you know, uh disability for the rest of my life i have a friend uh Stu content uh he was a cw3 i believe Stu, i'm sorry if i got it wrong but yeah he uh he crashed his apache uh over there and man did he, he took a lot of beating um but now he plays tennis competitively so good for this guy wow. in a wheelchair too um so, anyways, when you were when you went in, you did twenty six years, correct? Yes, twenty six and a half years. Were you expecting to be a lifer? No, never, never, never in a million years that I, I thought I was just going to do my active duty time, infantry, get out, use the college fund, and move on. But no, never did in a million years that I, well, ever think I'd become an Apache pilot at that. So, sure. Sure. That's one of the cool things about the military is that, you know, we complain about it a lot, but there's there's really good opportunities if you know how to find them. And if luck, <laughs> luck plays a huge role in that. Yeah. Uh, I would say some of the best, the longest and best careers and the most rewarding careers always comes from those people that didn't plan. Yeah. 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 It's unplanned. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a certain type of person that wants to be a lifer. <laughs> uh, speaking of which, what were the lifers like? back when you were just a, a young grunt because I assume those guys were all Vietnam veterans and we all know that a Vietnam the Vietnam you had two groups you had the the hellbent you know I'm a military guy and then you had the conscripts uh, so the people that stayed in I assume you had some conscripts that stayed in I assume but uh, what were they like what were your NCOs and your your senior uh, officers like back in 88 89 yeah that's interesting you say that because there was when I first showed up to uh, Fort Carson, um, a guy got high and threw the buffer through the third floor window out of the barracks and everybody else had to hold him down. And I was like, wow, that's pretty wild. And then several guys got uh, busted for uh, smoking and pissing hot and all that sort of stuff. But then you had the, uh, the NCOs that actually were in Vietnam and uh, they were striked. They were, they were squared away. Uh, uh, so yeah, it was two different, two different types of people there on uh, active duty. Sure. And you experienced, I asked this a lot of the, the guys who were in for a long time, you experienced two very different militaries, the pre and post 9-11 military. And even yours was kind of like a, a post-Vietnam, pre-9-11, so three militaries, post-Vietnam, pre-9-11, and 9-11. Uh, what's the biggest differences between them, in your, in your opinion? 
Oh, wow. That's a, that's a good question. The, the Vietnam guys, like I said, the, uh, the senior NCOs, and actually we had a captain that had a field grade commission uh, in Vietnam, Captain Ludlow, incredible guy. Um, those guys just did their job, and that was it. After, really, the next one was after uh, Panama, the invasion of Panama and uh, Desert Storm. Um, its guys were trying to stay in when uh, that administration had uh, drew down a lot of the pilots and a lot of senior guys drew them down. And so guys were fighting to stay in, especially on the aviation side. And then uh, before 9-11, everybody was like, man, we got to get into a war with somebody. Um, Bosnia was going on, but really that was extremely limited. And then obviously then 9-11 came around and then that was another, everybody wanted to go to war um, after 9-11. It was like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to kick your butts for, for punching us in the gut like you did. And uh, so, yeah, it was totally different after 9-11. The guys that were in, they wanted to be in. That's that's yeah. That's a that's a very interesting thing. We're having um, technical difficulties. Let me see this. If I press this button, Jeremy. Well, what's the left one? So that there we go. See that? See it's picking up now. See how it's interacting every time I talk. Can yeah. Can you guys see? Okay. Can you anybody hear me on my mic? Or is it picking up? You sound does it sound distant when it's going to Kevin? Testing one two three. Because now it's starting to piss me off. Because now I can't hear shit. You can't hear it. I can't hear it at all. On your headphones. Mm -hmm. That's weird. I press this, and you're plugged in, dude. I don't know what's going on. Keep it on you. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, All right, whatever. That's why I get paid the big bucks. Uh, <laughs> uh, here's a question. You, yeah, as in zero. Uh, I guess uh, in your decision process to go to, did you have to go to warrant officer school and then a flight school, or how did that whole whole thing work out? I don't understand. Yeah, it's. Uh, yes, it's. Um, straight from uh well i'd already been to basic training within something like five years so i did not have to go back to basic training and i never had a break in service so it was straight to warrant officer candidate school eight weeks of that um pretty simple stuff and then flight school started the next morning after you finished warrant officer candidate school um, the apache side was about a year and a half for the apache whereas the blackhawks the chinooks and the uh oh 58s they it was in about a year at the most for those schools. So everybody kind of wanted to go to the Blackhawks and um, Chinooks and stuff so they could get out of flight school sooner. Whereas uh, all of us gun guys, and there were only out of my class of like 40 or so in flight school, there were only six of us that actually went guns and uh, we all wanted to do it. There were some guys that went Blackhawks and all that were scared they were going to get selected to go guns, but thankfully they, uh, they to them, Thankfully, they didn't get selected. I don't know. If I had a choice, uh, I don't like helicopters. I, I don't mean any disrespect, but I just don't like flying yeah, in them. Yeah, he does. Uh, hated them. Hated. Uh, just, he I. Well, well, here's the thing, right? In a C-130, you can't shoot back, at least on the ones that I was on. You guys can shoot back, so I give you that. But if I had my choice, it would be the Apache or the Cobra. Uh, I mean, you have door gunners on the, on the uh, Blackhawks and the Hueys and stuff like that, but still, the ability to turn your head with that, free, what, what was it, 20 millimeter? Uh, what was that gun that you had underneath the cannon? The 30 millimeter. 30 millimeter, right? And yeah. as you turn your head, right? You the size of the projectile. Oh, look at that. Hey, yeah, that's a big, that's a big yeah, bullet. That's a big bullet. So size does matter, see? As, <laughs> as you're turning your head and, and you have that little eyepiece, that's where the gun is, is aiming at, correct? 
You are correct, yes. Yeah, so to be able to just look down at some asshole shooting at you and be like, oh yeah? I mean, that is such a, that's, that's nice. That's a nice. And that happened, that happened quite a bit. Um, I, I had one flight coming out of the Gall on the south end. I wrote about it in my book, but the Chinook in front of me was taking fire and I looked off to the right, less than the, probably about 50 meters, and there was a whole gaggle of um, Taliban shooting at them and at me. And I just looked at them, squeezed the trigger, and I, I, I know for a fact I cut one in half and um, hit the other ones in a big ball of dust or whatever. See, so, yeah, it was. Darwin went to the Galapagos and figured out <laughs> he could have just gone to any combat zone and been like, okay, look at this is, <laughs> what are you doing shooting at a flying tank? When I got hit with my first, uh, the first IED, about 200 pounds or so, um, I kind of came through and two, I got, you know, to the little birds that were above us and said, hey, you see the guy up to my three o'clock? He's like, yeah, we see him as making money. <laughs> and the amount of hell that rained down in this poor dude that was trying to swirl away. Plus, say the, the little birds have miniguns, right? Mm. <laughs> yeah, but did he have a chance to be unhappy if you actually hit him? I know. No. Yeah. Did you actually, do you know what? Did you go over and talk to him and ask, why are you so angry? And give him a hug and maybe find out <laughs> that's what we should be doing. But I digress. Well, I've got all these questions, fellow aviator. Um, so I had an assignment to the AC-130 gunships before I, I got out. And uh, here's the thing, when I think back on it, it makes me nervous, the idea of, you know, you're flying maybe on night vision or whatever, it's a very chaotic situation and you have troops in contact on say the south side of a road and you have to light up the north side of the road, you know, 25 meters away in a drainage ditch. How, how do you, I, I assume it's training, but still, when you're pulling the trigger, you're like, oh, God, I hope these are the, the bad guys. In, uh, about halfway through the year, we shot so many rockets that uh, we could put a rocket pretty uh, well within five meters of where we wanted it to be at about 1,000 meters out, maybe 1,500 meters out. The, the gun, though, you don't want, to, um, don't want to shoot too close to our guys with the gun because we shoot 10-round bursts. And depending on the recoil adapters on the gun, they could end up spreading out about 25 meters. And each bullet explodes. Each bullet uh, has about a five-meter kill radius. So, you're, yeah, you don't want to get danger close with uh, troops like that. Rockets, I had no problems. You don't want to shoot flechettes at the, at the bad guys that close because, um, yeah, flechettes kind of go out all over the place. I don't know if you know what a flechette is. I don't even know if I have one. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. That's it? That's the, hold on. Hold that up to yeah. the camera. That's, so where does that come out of? That comes, that's some steel, and it will ruin you, your day, and everybody around It is, um, there's almost 2,000 of those in one rocket. We shoot rockets in pairs, so you've got almost 4,000 of those hardened two-inch steel nails coming at you like a shotgun. At about 1,500 meters is the optimum range you want to hit somebody with. So you're going to have about a 30-meter cylinder of all those uh, flechettes coming at you. Damn. Jeez, that, that does it's not – it's terrifying. It's, it's terrifying. Why would anyone fuck? Well, then, now, the reason we used them is um, – well, one, because they're fun. But two, they have um, – it saves a lot of the intel for, uh, for the ground guys to go up there and find cameras, maps, paperwork, whatever – 
when the when it only killed the people as opposed to shooting them with a high explosive rocket. You hit them with a high explosive rocket and there's not much there's not much left to look through. You hit them with the pochettes and you're gonna get some intel off those people. Holy moly. I'm I'm intrigued. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just can't the whole idea yeah, that's that's. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna be YouTubing them after this. Um, so you you were deployed the Coringal Valley. Did you did you see any Iraq or was it straight to Afghanistan for you? Straight Afghanistan, and we got our pack and back badge to our Pakistan, and all we can't really say that we did, but yeah, right. we went into Pakistan a couple of times. Okay, yeah. Did um, where did where were you guys stationed out of? Were you flying out of Bagram or? Where yes. Okay. And oh, well, Bagram and Jalalabad and uh, Coast or Salerno, I should say, um, but mainly out of Jalalabad and Bagram. Did you have any uh, abilities to refuel while you're flying these things, or? No, we don't have aerial refueling with the Apache. The good part about Afghanistan is that we were never really more than about thirty minutes, forty-five minutes from any refueling spot. Okay. Okay. So you could like there were uh, fobs out there that had a FARP uh, yes. a refueling place. You could land, get some fuel, and okay. Because I, I always wondered about that. Because remember the, um, gosh, what was it? What, was it uh, Red Wing where they yeah. they said that the the close air support was too far away? And it's like I don't understand how that's possible with all the equipment we had up there but um well they outran the uh, chinooks the uh, chinooks they're they're pure power i mean they've got uh they don't have the aerodynamic deficiency so to speak of a single rotor system they've got dual rotors right but uh, they also have the power um we could not keep up with chinooks the okay. chinooks outran the apaches going into the corngall for operation red wings to uh you know bring in the seals and uh try to rescue latrell and those guys yeah. But uh, yeah, they just outran them. They they flew way faster than us. It was a kid, I believe, that took down that that aircraft, right? Wasn't it? That's the the rumor anyways. It was a kid with a, a rocket. rocket. Yeah, it was a rocket. Yep. Jeez, Louise. Okay, so there's podcasting, there's documentaries, there's veteran social media celebrities like myself. There's uh, <laughs> there's there's great tools for to advocate to for veteran causes. You told your story initially the classic way by writing a book. What was the driving force to your decision to write something like this? I believe you wrote South of Heaven, My Year in Afghanistan. Great title, by the way. How'd you come up with that name? Great title. Oh, there it is. Yeah. So I uh, came up with the title. Actually, the girl, Sandra, that helped me write it, um, her husband, uh, what's the name of the group? Slayer, I think, has a, a song titled South of Heaven. And he said it's got a really badass guitar riff at the beginning. But yeah. I chose the title only because... Afghanistan is a beautiful country. It really is um, when they're not shooting at you. So it was, uh, I, I say, I was hoping it was going to be a good time. And I was, like I said in the book, I wish I would have taken my snowboard. But um, it would uh, it would have been just like heaven. I mean, mountains, snow, desert, kind of like West Texas stuff and all that. But, you know, it's a war zone. So just south of heaven. So what, have you always been like a writer, a creative person, or what made you decide that you're actually going to put stuff down? No, I, uh, when I was active duty infantry, I had taken pictures with an old Canon AE-1. And years later, I wish I would have taken more pictures and remembered, you know, what are these guys doing now? And, you know, I'll remember this picture and that. So when I knew I was 
when I got mobilized to go to Afghanistan, I thought, you know what, I don't want to go back. So I'll just go ahead and uh, take as many pictures and videos as I can. So I did. I bought a little Sony Handycam uh, laptop. And it was about halfway through the uh, deployment that I got that little bullet cam is what we called it. And that's the, uh, the camera that we mounted on the landing gear that's underneath the helicopter. So when you see the footage, it's actually, uh, you see the gun moving, you see the rockets, you see the ground. I had it hooked up with my audio um, in the headset. So you could hear everything we were talking about. You could hear the gun shooting, hear the guys on the ground. How many hours of footage did you collect over over your deployment? Uh, about 25 hours of uh, video footage and gigabytes of pictures. That audio that you heard in the background, that was uh, Tusk-01, that was the A-10s that were overhead. They wanted in on the fight, and um, they were kind of jealous. And actually, when I talked to them a couple days later, they were really jealous. Because um, we got to do all the shooting, and they wanted to roll in. And I was more than happy to let them roll in on a, on a gun run. But uh, they kept wanting uh, further and further um, safe zones from our guys on the ground. So and finally, the Green Bray on the ground said, like, yeah, never mind. The Apaches already killed them all. So, but yeah, I wanted to film the A-10s from the air. Uh, coming in on a gun run, I thought that would have been pretty cool. Yeah, but, cool. Um, yeah. Well, no, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt. Well, I, I didn't, I never intended on writing a book or anything. Uh, when I got back, uh, that's when I, uh, Sandra, that helped me write it, I found out that a lot of my emails that I was sending home to my family and friends were getting passed around to thousands of people. At that time, remember 2006, the media, everything the news was in Iraq. So nothing was coming out of Afghanistan. So I found out that people were finding out what was going on from my emails. And so Sandra, being an English major, she said, hey, you ought to write a book. And so she helped me write it. And uh, a lot of things came out of that because I found out two and a half years later after writing it, um, it's a lot of work, but it was very therapeutic. It really helped me deal with a lot of, uh, of everything that happened while we were there. So, and then what it rolled on past that uh, 2011 is when the book came out. And then, um, after that people, I was showing the, the one video that's the last battle in the movie, uh, above the best, but it's my version. You can actually see the bullets and the RPGs and stuff like that in the movie. They kind of edited it out a little bit. Um, so that's kind of how the movie came about afterwards. I met David Salzberg, who did The Hornet's Nest, um, Citizen Soldier, and then I helped, he got me in to help them with uh, Apache Warrior. And then uh, with that, he made my movie Above the Best. Nice. Can you put me in touch with him? Because uh, I saw The Hornet's Nest. That's where he's filmed with his son. Is that right? That's Mike Betcher. Mike, Mike Betcher and his son Carlos. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause that's insane. Like for, can you imagine how much you love your kids and how much you want to protect them, taking them to Afghanistan? And there was uh, Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. They both go to Afghanistan. No, he's not like a little kid. They were, oh. yeah, he's probably in his twenties and the dad's Jeez. in his fifties, but they go, they're, they're, um, they're uh, journalists and they go to film this war and yeah, he, he had him in a baby Bjorn, he had him in a baby Bjorn. It was fine. Um, so yeah, I guess my next question, which you, you already answered, is is uh, I assume there's some sort of catharsis. Um, that means a healing process, Jeremy and Frank. I know with the Marines in here, we got to keep the words kind of. Uh, 
simple, but there, was there a catharsis? Was there a catharsis in putting these experiences down on paper? Say that again. Uh, was there a um, uh, a personal healing or catharsis in putting down these experiences on paper? Yes, um, I did not realize it till after I'd written it. When I finished it, it was wow, a huge load off my chest and. Yeah, it really helped me. It really helped me out a lot. And I found this out over the years, meeting up with some of the guys that I was there with and the guys that were on the ground and uh, found out that a lot of them have had issues coming back, even uh, yeah, issues. And they wish they would have just talked to somebody and, you know, tell them what it is. And I said, yeah, you know, I wrote the book and that was just one big, long talk. Put it on on my, you know, put it off my chest. Sure. And, and here's the problem, right? Memory is is horrendous memory if you're relying on if you're beating yourself up because of your memory of things know that it is so unreliable that it probably happened a different way that's number one number two any sort of therapy that you go to um, the biggest one i think of is cbt and cpt what you're doing is you're basically writing out all your experiences and then you're you're looking at them and you're picking out uh, what we would call objective truths versus subjective truths you're saying okay like um you know i shot uh I don't know, whatever it is, okay? So this is the issue I'm dealing with. And then what you do is in your memory, you, you kind of make it into a certain thing that might not have been that way. And then you put meaning behind it and then you beat yourself up over it for 20 years. And then it just becomes a big mess. When you write things out, there it is in front of you. You try to write it as objectively as possible. And like you're in the, the court of law, you compare, okay, the way I internalize this is that I fucked up. But in truth, this is what happened and I didn't fuck up. This is just how things happen. And to be able to do that is, is I mean, if, if for anyone's listening right now, uh, it, it, I went into therapy thinking, nah, there's no way, no way that they're gonna be able to help me. And then, and then that process, which is basically writing, <laughs> basically what you're doing, uh, really set the record straight in my own head. You literally just summarized everything that you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that's that's cognitive cognitive processing therapy, therapy or something like that. Yeah, CBT, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You basically take everything that that you have because you you make up a movie in your head. You're like, this is how it happened, and and it's not real. I mean, it's a horrible movie, and Lord knows I don't. Is it realistic? Is it true? Is it yeah. logical? Yeah, the whole thing. And yeah. Then if it's bad enough, you go through um, um, exposure therapy to actually desensitized to whatever you're, you're going through. My favorite is my therapist always said this with that, like I would say something I failed and they would, she would say, okay, what are the facts that you failed? And I'd sit there and be like, I don't know. I just felt like I failed. Okay. Would that stand up in the court of law? No. No. Nope. I told Jeremy uh, last week or a week before. God, I hope people can hear you right now, but go ahead. I showed up and it was literally, I was like, dude, I just had a rough one with my therapist. Everything, I was wrong. She pulled everything out, and I just like, and I put it right in my face, and I'm like, "Well, I screwed up." She goes, "Did you really? Tell me how you exactly, tell me exactly how you screwed up." And I couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You left you hanging. Yeah. Because you can, you could come up with a story how you screwed up, but when you try to put the facts out, it's like, I guess I didn't, and yeah. yeah. So if exactly. you're not, if if you're not getting therapy because you don't think it'll work, you're you're wrong. Oh, it works. Um, you just have to it trust in the situation. Hundred percent works. I don't know. What do you what do you think, Dan? <laughs> yeah, kinda... yeah, no, no. I agree. I'd say, kind of my my one deal was that 
I filmed a lot of it, especially the, the last fight in the Cornwall that I was in, where I thought, oh, man, this is it. I'm fixing a, I'm fixing to get knocked out of the sky. Um, and I relived it for real, watching the video with the audio and everything. Um, I didn't realize how, let's see, how uh, how intense it was until I shown that did a speaking deal at the uh, some gun show place. There's over 500 people in there, and uh, pretty much said everything that happened, played the video, pointed out the bullets coming at me, the RPGs coming at me, and everything else. And when uh, when it stopped, it was completely dead silent in there. Over 500 people in there, and um, it was several months later. There was a lady that was in there that had saying, hey, wow, I, I was at your speaking deal. And she was like, I've never, she said, she's never been to a speaking event where everybody was dead silent. Normally there's somebody talking, cell phones and all that sort of stuff. Everybody was watching you and everybody was in tears or just their mouths wide open in awe as to what was happening. To me, I was just reliving it as it happened. It was just another day on the job, but, uh, letting it out there like that over several times I did it um, helped me out a lot, a whole lot. Yeah. We desensitize so much we don't realize we do it. We desensitize our trauma. We think like, oh, it was just my job. Yeah. It was only a 200 pound IAD that we No big deal. To anyone else, that's like, you got blown up by a 200 pound explosive. It's like, yeah, it was Tuesday. Yeah. Or, or one thing that I, I, I got in trouble for, like last year when I said this, because people misinterpreted it, I say, veterans compare their trauma to others. And I think what people thought I meant was my trauma is worse than yours. But no, it meant, it meant this guy lost a leg. How is my trauma worse than his? Yeah. Uh, this guy. And then, and then what's funny is if you get, if you sit down, like uh, veterans, we bust each other, we bust our balls and make fun of each other all the time. But if you, if you actually sit around quietly, and, and I think this is why group therapy is really good. And you say, okay, here's a situation. Um, it's stupid. It doesn't compare to yours, but you know, I was flying low level through here and we got lit up by an SA seven and then blah, blah, blah. And our engine caught fire and everyone would be like, are you, are you serious? And you're like, well, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I, I, you know, it wasn't hitting an IED and they'd be like, yeah, but what, what your engine caught fire, you know what I mean? And it's like, what becomes normal for you to other people, it's like, oh, hell no, I'm not gonna do that. Uh, a firefight for Jeremy mm -hmm. is like, to me, I'm like, dude, really? But I'm like, yeah, it was just a 200 pound IED. He's like, a 200 pound IED? <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, again, it's Tuesday. Yeah. 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 So, lesson. Lesson. Oh, really? Oh, Mine was a Wednesday. Good. <laughs> it literally wasn't um, Man, we have gone on for a long time and I got 6,000 questions here. Uh, I, here's one. Uh, in the Apache Warrior film, there's a grizzly old guy. I believe he's a lieutenant colonel. He smacked a, a fly and he says, You got to kill something every day to stay sharp. First off, yes. best line I've seen in a movie in a long yes. time. And who is that guy? Yes. Uh, colonel Alan Hahn. He's with the uh, Apache Warrior Foundation. And yes, okay. he. Um, we kind of say that in the Apache world also, the gun world. is like kill something every day, no matter how small, just to stay proficient. <laughs> That's the best That's, thing I've ever heard. Oh rent, rent the movie just for that one scene. And it's, it's like four seconds, and you're like, oh, this guy. And then he just looks. He looks the part. There, Jeremy, can you Google, what was his name? Lieutenant Colonel? Alan Hahn, A-L-L-A-N, and H-A-H-N. He's with the Apache Warrior Foundation. H-A-H-N. 
HN. See if you can pull up his picture. That's the best line I know. I've ever heard. I know. Uh, <laughs> Next to the Sergeant Major and um, we were soldiers. Oh, yeah. Says, Good, Good morning, morning, Sergeant Major. We were playing that the other day. Yeah. Okay. Well, Jeremy, looks that up. Are you ready for the rundown? This is probably going to be uh, the most intense three minutes of your life. Uh, and I apologize ahead of time, but here we go. Version 1, Chief. Here we go. Alan, A-L-A-N-H-A-H-N. Yep. Apache Warrior Foundation. See if we can find it. Why are you doing that? Okay. You got this, Chief. I believe in you. Here we go. What's with the Osprey? Are they Helos or Fixed Wing? And which crowd are they allowed to hang out with? No, oh, that's a good one because we don't know either. I never sell one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. I see him fly over. They're impressive. Oh, do you, do you have the, the picture of this guy? I'm bringing it up now. Okay. Oh, my God. Who we are, directors and advisors. Oh, oh if it's like just a stock photo. Oh, wait. Just to fall out of the sky. Hold on. I can, I can pull it up and then blow up his face. Hold okay, on. let's see. Let's see. There he is. Yep. Yep, there he is, right in the middle. Oh, yeah. so, so blow him up. Isn't, that guy's yeah. a killer through and through. No, oh, he stacks bodies. <laughs> no, that's not it. That's not her. There he is. Yeah. Oh, he does stack bodies. Look at that stats. Yeah, yeah. What a cool guy. Man, I, see, one of my favorite things about military is tradition. I love tradition. Air Force shit on tradition every single time, they, every chance they could get. But, um, man, those, those uh, hats that's, that you guys wear. That's more time in service than half of the military. Yeah, it's freaking, those are, those are pretty sweet looking. Everyone always gets married that's in them. Sweet. Okay, second question. Let's see if you can get this one. Hold on to your horses. What was the highest recorded altitude of a helicopter ever? I think it's something like 30, 20, uh, just under 30,000 feet. You landed on top of uh, Mount Everest. Ooh, you're getting ahead of the game here. It was actually 1972, some sort of turbo something, blah, blah, blah. I, I cut it. Alouette, yeah. 40,820 feet on a helicopter. That's that's like 15,000 feet higher than a C-130 can fly. And we have wings and four engines. <laughs> All right. What is the largest, the world's largest, the world's largest helicopter? Oh, it's that Soviet. It's a Soviet one. I don't even know the name of it. The, the it's a Soviet, Soviet heavy transport. We'll give you a, uh, you get a point for that. Uh, oh, and then here's the question that you asked. What's the highest altitude a helicopter has ever landed? A-Star B-3E, A-Star helicopter on top of Everest. What, 2009, 2008? 2005. That's ah, close. 29,000, that's insane. When I see, you see these guys who, especially the fact you got to keep the rotor I guess what you call that. The helicopter road. pilots are crazy. Yeah, they really are. The video that you showed of him, he's sitting there looking around, everything's cool. You have pitch, you have yaw, you have this oh, axis. Oh, it's insane. That axis, this axis. He's looking around like it's a freaking Wednesday. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, man, I'm good. I, I interviewed a guy. Check out this book. It's called... Um, uh, oh, now I'm going to forget. His name's Mark Garrison. It was uh, gun sh Guts and Gunships. Uh, I had him on a few years ago, and he said he wrote his brother. This was during Vietnam. He wrote his brother and said, if you ever see a helicopter flying, don't believe it because they shouldn't fly. They just don't, they don't make sense. And he said that first day of flight school in Vietnam, they're like, these things are going all over the place, and they can't keep them straight. And yeah. I assume it's like patting your belly and, and rubbing your head, right? After a while, it just kind of becomes second nature. I mean, it has to if you have thousands of hours. Freaking, yeah. 
Sorry, I'm asking the questions, aren't I? Uh, what? What year? You can't hear me. What year? And and you can get a point for each one of these manufacturer and designation. Uh, what year was the first mass-produced helicopter made? The first mass uh, that was what the Huey Saurus in nineteen and sixty-one. Uh, believe it or not, it was called the R4 in 1942. I, I can't believe it. And guess who made it? Guess who made it? Sikorsky. But, but it could, that could be wrong. It could be wrong. He's going to be like this son of a bitch. All right, here we go. These ones, these ones are really, I mean, uh, if you don't get these, then I don't know what we can do here. Helicopter pilots are best known for blank. For, uh, got a clearing turn there. For uh, their special prowess. There you go. There you go. Okay, here we go. I told you shit on you. Fixed wing pilots are best at. Showing up at the O Club. <laughs> one gun. That's all you can have for the apocalypse. Which one is it? Oh, the M two thirty E one chain gun on the Apache helicopter. <laughs> but I mean, you would have to have the helicopter and the fuel and everything, uh, and the rockets and the missiles to go with it. <laughs> so an Apache helicopter. Okay, I got that. <laughs> yeah. uh, what is the worst thing a veteran can do for their mental health? Keep it in. Yeah, don't don't keep it in. Talk to somebody, anybody. What is the best thing? And we just kind of just gonna answer that. <laughs> yeah. What What is the most common thing people say when they find out you're a helo pilot? Cool. Yeah, people love helicopter pilots. It's so weird. Did you know that the lead singer of Kiss uh, is a helicopter pilot? What's his name? Oh no, 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 no. Yes. No, who's the guy that does Donkashe? You guys First, know. Okay, no, are you looking at me? What? No, you know that song? It's the, the guy. He's like an Indian-looking dude with the dark hair, big dark hair. Hmm. Oh, no. He's like an old. He's like an old. Uh, okay, anyways, he's a, Wayne Newton. There you go. There it is. Yeah, Wayne Newton. I believe it's Wayne. It was either Wayne Newton or they looked the same. Maybe, maybe I'm hoping they can. I don't know. This whole, the, all the technical issues during this episode is. Crushed my soul, but maybe we cut. Maybe we captured it all, and I can. I hope so. Slowly but surely. Actually, not even slowly, but just from his description of the Yeah. Okay. You're cut off. Anyways, 9, 10 p.m. We've had you on for a while. Uh, so when when can folks, uh, or where can folks find you? Where can they find things you're involved in? Where can they get your book and all that good stuff? And, well, I'll ask you the last question at the end. But go ahead. Yeah. Oh, they can find the, uh, the book, South of Heaven, My Year in Afghanistan, uh, Amazon Prime, or Amazon. And then the movie with all that cool footage is called Above the Best. That's also on Amazon, iTunes, stuff like that. I'll be doing a movie screening at the Oshkosh Air Show uh, here at the end of July, July 27th, that Tuesday at 1 o'clock. I'll be screening the movie there. And uh, the other movie that's in the Heroes of Valor series is Apache Warrior, which you'll see me in on that one also, but they use my footage to finish up that film. Because you're right, it's about Iraq, 
above the best is about Afghanistan and uh, the air war and the ground war in Afghanistan. And then, uh, so all those you can get on Amazon. Awesome. Well, uh, I, I plan on going down to Conroe quite a bit, uh, especially if we move there, if the housing market ever changes, because we would be homeless if we sold our house. But uh, I will look you up when I'm down there, because uh, yeah. definitely we'll go to the Hero, no, the Honor Cafe. Honor Cafe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dan, thank you, or Daniel, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry about the technical difficulties. I don't know what's going on today, but I'm going to punch some walls. I think after that, gremlins. I mean, everything, everything went to shit from minute one but uh, especially oh, with a very interesting download is tonight. all right there you go someone is going to download your uh, your video all right thank you uh sir for coming on and you know maybe when we get all this figured out we'll have you on again sure. not have any of this crap go down but um you know this is what happens with live entertainment <laughs> yeah there you go all right all right thanks thanks so much for having me on here absolutely Appreciate absolutely you. take care this is what we have for quote entertainment, man. So, I, 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 mm. yeah, man. Sometimes shit just goes wrong, man. Yeah. So sound is out. Sound is back. Sound is out. Sound is back. Uh, I don't know. God, that makes me mad. Makes me sick to my stomach. You know. I, I, to... I think maybe it was maybe maybe the mic or something or. All right. Well, we'll troubleshoot it. Uh, I'm gonna play something to make me laugh because I'm so pissed off right now, uh, and I hope you guys all enjoy it. This is um, well. I'll let you. I'll let you. Uh, just enjoy this gem. We're having a good time here, Thias. Philadelphia. I, I born and raised. Yeah. In the uh, in the playground is, is where I spend most of my days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Spot on. Uh, yeah, you know, just chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool, and uh, you know, uh, shooting some b-ball outside of the school. Now there were there were um, there were a couple of guys. And, and, and they, now they were up to no good. And they, you know, start making trouble in the neighborhood. I, <laughs> I got into, uh, I got into one little fight and, and my mom got scared. She said, oh, you're moving with your auntie and uncle in Bel Air, you know. Uh, so, so I, I, I whistled for a cab and, and when he came near the, the, the license plate, I remember it said fresh and, and, and there were dice in the mirror. Um, if anything, I could say it was, uh, this, this cat was weird, but, but I thought, Hey, forget it. You, hey, Holmes, Bel Air. So, uh, I pulled up to the house about uh, seven or eight and I yelled to the cab, but yeah, Hey, Hey, Holmes, uh, smell you later. You know, cause he, he was driving a lot. I, I, I looked at my kingdom yeah, and I, and I was, I was finally there to, uh, to sit on my throne as the uh, <laughs> as the prince of Bel Air. Yeah, that's, that's, I remember that. All right, we'll see you guys next week with bulkhead bulkhead energy drinks, and we're gonna have the Guam guy on and all sorts of stuff. So we'll see you guys next week, and hopefully we can get this technical shit squared away because I'm gonna go to bed tonight and punch the pillow. Oh baby, I'm very upset. Very upset. Till next week, guys. Yeah, guys. Set the place on fire.